Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today we are talking all things holistic cancer medicine, why we're seeing such an uptick in cancer. We're going to talk about uh, what does holistic actually mean. We are going to talk about cancer prevention, cancer reversal from a holistic perspective, what's possible, what does the science say, and what is our leading uh, researchers and scientists and doctors who are treating patients actually seeing firsthand with being able to help people empower their own bodies to heal from cancer. And today on the podcast, I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Henning Saupa, all the way from Germ Germany. Dr. Saupa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan Crane. It's an honor and a great pleasure to be with you tonight, today and to discuss this very, very important topic, health and healing from cancer. Yeah, it's 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 my honor, my pleasure. As we were talking previous, just uh, behind the scenes a little bit. I mean, I've I've uh, seen your work and followed your work for years. Um, super excited that we get to connect now and and talk deeply about it. I know you just uh, published a new book called Holistic Cancer Medicine. Let's start there. So, not everyone realizes what holistic actually means, and I think partly because maybe there's different definitions of holistic depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, one of my main missions in life and um, have been for years is to bring holistic medicine, holistic healthcare, holistic lifestyle into the mainstream living and learning about holistic health has totally transformed my life for the better. And many of the thousands of people uh, that we work with all around the world, including cancer patients. And so when I say the word holistic, I'm talking about what I call the seven tenets of holistic health, which I, I um, reframed from uh, Ohio State University's nine dimensions of wellness and condensed them into seven based on all the research and experience that I've had over the past 17 years. And that's mental, emo mental emotional is one, physical, spiritual, vocational, financial, relational, and environmental, right? And so looking at all of these areas of our life and health and um, uh, wellness is is critically important to living a truly healthy life. Oftentimes, we just focus on the physical and we forget about the mental, emotional and don't realize that those two are actually deeply interconnected or vice versa. Like we become very spiritual beings and live a beautifully spiritual life, but forget about the financial side or the environmental side. And so you know, I, it, and as you know, working with cancer patients, it's really, really important that actually we address the entire person and every aspect of their life because cancer is a multifaceted uh, disease that manifests in the body from often all of these different areas. So can you start there and talk about when you say holistic medicine or the word holistic, what is your framework for that? Well, thank you for that very important question right at the beginning. Um, holistic is a Greek word and comes from 
the word holon, which is everything that is, the whole spectrum of things in God's universe, everything. So holistic means that we open our interests and the spectrum of questions for literally everything there is, everything that makes sense to ask if a problem occurs that is as severe and important to look at and life's important as cancer. And as you already said, cancer is a very complex, multifaceted disease, so it deserves to be looked at from all sides. And holistic means we're open, we have many perspectives, we look from every possible viewpoint, from every possible uh, uh, view angle on the, on the phenomenon cancer and keep on asking the question, what is happening? Why does it happen? And what would be needed to reverse it or to guide it back into balance and harmony in what we call health? Let me tell you an, uh, another word that is the opposite of holistic and that is used, that was used as the philosophical background at the university I studied medicine at 30 years ago in Germany and still is the leading approach or philosophy behind Western world medicine. And it's the word reductionistic. So reductionistic is if you... If you make your view very, very narrow and only look at a tiny little part of reality and cut off everything else. And that is exactly one of the pitfalls that I experience in modern oncology, that the approach, if you go to a world-leading hospital, doesn't matter in the States, in Germany, in France, in England, even in Asia, it's everywhere the same approach. It's an approach that directly goes to the cancer cell and looks at how can we block this cell and what agents do we need to kill it. Um, that's the tumor-focused reductionistic approach. And it became the leading approach since probably 150 years back in time when medicine became more and more reductionistic and more and more materialistic. That means spiritual, emotional, psychological dimensions were just not respected any any longer, were ignored. And the focus went more and more and more to the cell as if the cell was the only reason for the disease, but it's not. So the holistic approach does not only look at the tumor, it looks at the entire complex system around the tumor, which is the human being, which is the complexity of, of biochemical reactions around the tumor that we will talk more about, like toxicity, inflammation, oxygen, pH level, etc. The biology around the tumor that defines the biological terrain. So the first thing I, I want to mention, what, what is different in the holistic approach compared to the reductionistic approach is we do not only look at the cancer cell, we look at the entire terrain around the cancer cell that obviously allows the cell to grow and to multiply and to grow into a larger and larger lump that eventually becomes a life-threatening um, issue in a human body. And the problem is not only located inside the cell, um, the problem is located as much in the terrain around it 
as probably in the cell too. And both aspects, the tumor centered and the terrain focused aspect together makes it a holistic approach. So yes, we are interested in tumor cells for sure, but we are also interested in everything around it. The food we eat, the toxins we have uh, exposed us to, uh, the way we get rid of toxins, the quality of water we drink, et cetera, et cetera. So holistic is wide open interest to everything that matters versus reductionistic that throws away 99% of the information and only stares at the cell as if that was the only problem we had to deal with. So a very simple um, game we could play would be to ask the question, you know, has this reductionistic approach to health and disease, has it actually worked? Has it made things better? We know that kind of the reductionistic model has been the, the predominant model for the past hundred plus years, right? Here in, in Western medical medicine and conventional medicine, we know that uh, a lot of the um, holistic medicine that was around for centuries was devalued and was intentionally um, you know, swept under the rug for the pharmacological approach. And the pharmacological approach is the reductionist model, right? Which is right. let's find one molecule that attacks the cancer cells or let's find one molecule that uh, reduces the uh, blood pressure or that triggers this response in the body or whatever. Let's find that one so-called cure for whatever disease it is. And what we can see if we just play this little thought experiment, play this little thought game and ask the question, has that approach, which has pretty much dominated medicine for a century now, if not longer, um, has it actually made things better? Are we any closer to a cure and have we seen disease rates actually go down instead of go up over the past hundred years? And the answer is absolutely not. Cancer uh, prevalence in 1905 was believed to be about 0.05%, right? Less than 1%. In 1950, we saw that skyrocket to 10%. And now we see it here in the Western world, United States, as well as a lot of developed countries, it's almost at 50% of people, right? So cancer has skyrocketed, heart disease has skyrocketed, diabetes has skyrocketed, autoimmune disease has skyrocketed. All of these primarily diet and lifestyle related diseases, diseases that are primarily preventable that we could call metabolic diseases have skyrocketed beyond belief at the same time that trillions and literally trillions of dollars have been invested into, you know, the pharmacological reductionistic, what we now call conventional medical approach. So has it gotten better? The simple answer is no. So, if, if that doesn't work, then why are we still doing it? That's the question. Yeah, I guess there is only one answer to that. Um, and that is because many people earn money from the drugs that are distributed uh, by medical doctors that make their career with the research that is financed uh, from the companies that earn the money. And that's uh, a waterproof, vicious circle. And it keeps on spinning now for approximately a hundred years. And um, the trend that you just shared with us is a 
shocking proof for that. No, we are not in control of this disease or the family of diseases that are called cancerous diseases. Let me, for the sake of being complete and, and pay some uh, or give some honor to some credit to pharmaceutical uh, uh, inventions, mention that, yes, in some quarters, we have made progress progress uh, with modern drugs. Right. Livec, for instance. Uh, um, there is one particular um, disease called chronic myelotic leukemia, one of the many leukemias, and scientists found out that this particular leukemia is based on one gene impairment. And then they found a, a drug um, that inhibited an enzyme that is overactive in the lymphocytes and the white blood cells of patients suffering from chronic myelotic leukemia, and that drugs uh, uh, inhibits a, a cyrosine kinase, an enzyme. And with this one drug, you can manage one disease, chronic myelotic leukemia. So applause in this corner of oncology, modern science and and. Uh, Therapy based on the pharmaceutical is very successful. But it's now, when you say when you say manage the cancer, like what what are what are the actual results of that? Well, drug as long as you ingest a tablet of, of this uh, cytosine kinase inhibitor a day, you can expect that the disease goes into remission, remains dormant because you bridge this one gene impairment that this disease is based on. But that's what the message to our audience today is. This is an exception. This is this disease is called cancer. It's one of the many types of blood cancer, but it's an exception. It's the simplest and best understood type of, of leukemia based on one single gene impairment. And that's the exception because most cancerous diseases, the big number, the big diseases of our time, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer do not come with one gene impairment, but with a couple of hundred or many hundred gene impairments. And that alone makes it crystal clear that we will never develop two or 300 different enzyme blockers. And by the way, every patient represents its own subtype of cancer. Modern cancer scientists tell us that Peter's prostate cancer is very different from Michael's prostate cancer, and John has a different type uh, so every every constellation of gene impairments in a in a cancerous disease that takes place in one organ uh, is very different. So the message was that chronic myelotic leukemia is a relatively simple disease uh, and can be managed, can be kept at bay uh, by taking one pill a day for the rest of your life. Um, but that is not going to happen with all the other diseases that are so much more complex, many hundred times more complex in its genetic background than this one type of leukemia. I just wanted to honor that if you said we have not changed anything, yeah, there, there are some tiny changes. And for the ones who have uh, CML, uh, chronic myelotic leukemia, it's a blessing that this drug exists. Mm, but yeah. for the other 499 types of cancer, if we say it's roughly 500 different types of cancer and in the family of cancerous diseases, sorry, we do not have this one blocker and we will probably never have it because of the complexity of the disease. So right. all the, the big um, types of cancer that matters in, matter in modern society, prostate, breast, colon, colon, digestive tract cancer, pancreatic, gallbladder, and lung cancer um, will not be kept at bay with one or two or three drugs. That is for sure. That is what scientists tell us. It's far too complex. So that's 
the invitation to widen the spectrum and see it's not only about the cancer cell, it's also about the terrain. Why does the terrain support cancer growth? And how can we change that support into what is our natural state to control the few cancer cells that everybody produces? Um, another stunning truth is that was published, to my knowledge, around 20, 25 years for the first time, is that every human individual produces a few thousand cancer cells every day. That means that everybody has a, a health system, and a, a self-healing program um, in our immune system, in the self-regulative system of our body that keeps these unwanted cells under control. Otherwise, everybody would develop cancer. Thanks God, not every everybody develops cancer. So the ones who still ha are healthy and ha have not received the diagnosis can say, I produce a few thousand cancer cells today, but my body is strong enough to find these cells and to take care of the cells uh, out of my immune system and my self-healing capacity and eliminate the cells the same day they occurred. And this is the healthy uh, system of a, a healthy person. We call it uh, homeostasis, the self-regulation of man based on a number of vitality factors that represent the core picture or the core message in my book, Holistic Cancer Medicine, where I um, describe vitality or the self-healing capacity of man in 12 sections and explain how we can work on our self-healing capacity, on our vitality, so that we either stay healthy and do not develop a cancerous disease, or in case we already developed it, activate our self-healing system again so that our body can control unwanted cancer growth. Exactly. So a couple of things uh, I want to address. One is the, the idea that we all have cancer cells inside of us every single day. I've been, I've been saying this for years as I discovered this you know, years ago from, from so many great uh, doctors like yourself and scientists who you know, have studied cancer for decades, that we have cancer every single day, right? You just said thousands of cells each day. And um, so it's nothing to, you know, for... For the average person, we become incredibly afraid of cancer, and that's that's what happened to me when my grandfather was diagnosed, and I didn't know what to do or what to say. And then he, you know, did the conventional treatment of chemotherapy and radiation, and it basically killed him, destroyed his immune system, and and he died. And that's very often, right? Most cancer patients actually don't die from cancer. They most cancer patients actually uh, die from heart disease, is what they say. But I would go deeper as to theorize that what often kills cancer patients much earlier uh, in their lives is the, the the treatment that destroys the immune system. Because just like you said, we need a fully functioning immune system to fight off cancer cells, which is what it does every single day. And if we destroy that, which is what chemotherapy and radiation does, it does kill cancer cells. It doesn't, it, it doesn't kill cancer stem cells. And we can talk about the difference and the importance of that in a bit, because I think that's really important. Like very important, yeah. Right, because the cancer can can easily come back if if this cancer stem cells are not destroyed, which we know chemotherapy and radiation does not kill cancer stem cells. So, the the fact that we destroy the immune system with carcinogenic treatments, chemotherapy, it, you know, radiation is a carcinogenic treatment, meaning it causes cancer. 
At the same time, it's killing cancer and destroying your immune system. We can talk about the nuances of that because I think that's quite fascinating. But we live with cancer every single day. And I'll share a graph for those who are watching um, and those who are only listening. We can explain it. But this is, this is basically um, from uh, cancer cells in the body. It's, it's, ba- it's generally understood. This is generally everybody's a little bit different. But it's generally understood that, that cancer cells, active cancer cells, double in number about every 90 days, right? So if you had two cells at 90 days, in one year, if, you, if it's not, if your body's not removing these cells, right, you would have 16 cells. In two years, you'd have 256 cells. In three years, you'd have almost 5,000 cells. In four years, you'd have 65,000 cells. In five years of this, let's say this is a tumor that's developing, right? In five years, you'd have over a million cells. At that point, with most conventional um, most conventional uh, cancer testing, it is still undetectable. Now, there are some new tests, and maybe you can talk about some of those too. There's some people who are concerned about maybe cancer, um, you know, preventatively want to see, because there are some really early testing now that's, um, you know, the, the Greek test, we could talk about that, or some other kinds of tests. Maybe you know some great ones that can detect much earlier. But by the time it's doubled 32 times, that's at about eight years, that's generally when it's detected, meaning that cancer has been forming in your body for years and in some cases decades before you even discover it. And right. right, and so if we actually have a fully functioning immune system, we stop, we basically stop that um, that uh, doubling process. We have new cancer cells because of mitochondrial die-off and damage, et cetera. We can talk about that. And, and but our body, you know, recycles, repairs, removes those cells and, and we live, you know, a healthy, normal life. It's when our immune system's inhibited. It's not doing its job properly. We've got damage going on. We've got all kinds of issues and stress and toxins and chemicals. And then that cancer grows out of control. And then all of a sudden you have a diagnosis and there's so much fear around it because we are not taught about cancer. What is it? What causes it? Where does it come from? Right? All we know as a society is, oh, my, my grandpa had cancer. I watched his hair fall out. He got really sick. He was very weak. He lost all his weight. He basically laid on a deathbed and died. That's basically, right? I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but that's basically the what's in our modern global psyche of what cancer is. And in fact, that's not what cancer is at all. Right. So the question is very important and spot on. Let's answer. Please. What is cancer? Um, So for the first, it's already said, it's something that occurs in every human body and every animal body all the time. So amongst the 100 trillion cells that form my body and your body and everybody's body, Uh, There will always be some cells every day that fall into into an impaired reproduction program because of damage, of shortage of energy, of shortage of oxygen, of overload of toxins, or aging. Aging is a risk factor for our cells. Uh, After many, many generations, um, the copies of the DNA are not made perfectly uh, in, uh, and, and uh, contain some, some uh, genetic uh, mistakes, some deviations. So cancer is a natural 
deviation of the healthy life form um, as a consequence of chronic stress or aging. Yeah, 80-year-old uh, men are very likely to have prostate cancer. It's almost a given thing that if you uh, dig deep enough into a prostate of an aged gentleman, you will always find a little bit of cancer. That does not mean that this gentleman needs to die from, from this disease, but having it, the same is true for thyroid. Uh, if you if you screen thyroids of aged people, it's very likely that you find a cancerous spot there. Um, and that does not mean that, that, that these individuals all die from cancer. What I want to say is that aging in itself is something that makes it more and more likely that cancer cells develop in your body because of, let's say, shortage of vital energy and accumulation of toxicity or more and more unwanted inflammation. So let's let's clarify there. So is it actually aging or is it the modern lifestyle that we live coupled with um, years and years and years of that of that exposure to those things that cause inflammation that lead to cancer, right? Because I think that that can be slightly confusing. If we say, well, it's just aging. Well, even if we were perfectly like eating the most healthy diet and away from toxins and living a completely organic lifestyle and you know living the most healthy ideal lifestyle you possibly could, um, is it inevitable that we end up with cancer at 80, 90, or 100? Is it just inevitable? Or say, is it the accumulation of time plus a toxic lifestyle? It's, of course, the latter. It's the, it's the combination of both. And if we go into extreme examples, let's say centenarians um, um, who enjoy their life and, and are 100, 100, 100, two years old, um, what I've read is that if you would do an, an intensive diagnostic with, an, with a, uh, a healthy centenarian, yes, you would very likely find cancer in the prostate, in the breast, in the thyroid. But is that a disease? It's a good question. It's almost a philosophical question. Um, if a healthy centenarian is found with some cancerous nodules in his thyroid or in his prostate, um, I leave it open to, to the audience and <laughs> how to call it. Is this health or is this disease? I would say if you have made it a hundred years and you're still right in your wits and, and enjoy life, then, then you're having a healthy life. And that is fully, um, compatible with the fact that yes, you might find some cancer. And, and I, I like this, this, um, analogy with the centenarians that they can have cancer and have a good life. Because cancer does not come from outer space. It's a part <laughs> right. of the human condition. It does not fall like a falling star into my body. Ooh, how comes? No, it has been before in my body. And it's, it, it has been before in my genes as a potential risk. We know today from, from experts in genetics that we all have stitched in proto-oncogenes into our genome. So... Yes, we have the potential to develop cancer from the beginning of our conception. That is not foreign to the human condition. It lives within us as a potential. Um, let me give another analogy. Uh, we're all infected. We all carry thousands of viruses. Is that a disease? Um, do I have a, a, a problem with the herpes viruses that I carry that I got 
from since I was a child, no, I would not call that a disease because my body is in control of, of it. I, I do not suffer from it. And I am in homeostasis. There might be some herpes simplex viruses alongside my my nerves and my spine. But as long as my immune system is strong, as long as I have enough power in my mitochondria, produce enough ATP, inhale uh, enough oxygen, excrete the toxins I produce and I ingest, uh, I'm in balance and I do not suffer from a virus disease. So I, I, I give a different or I have learned a different, a new way of defining health. It's homeostasis. It's not the absence of viruses. It's not the absence of cancer cells. It's a body in control and thriving with some ups and some downs. So it's a complex answer to your question. I would say it's inevitable that cancer coexists in our body, but let it be something that coexists and does not uh, steal my life, does not um, uh, conquer my life or or, uh, threaten my life. It is something that should be on a very low level, and yes, I would say it's inevitable. A little bit of cancer will always be around, at, as well as there will always be viruses. It belongs to life on our planet. We will not, we will never have a sterile world, thanks God, because there, all these bugs are needed for something in nature. Uh, and we have to relearn what health is. Again, health is not the absence of cancer cells or viruses. Health is being in balance and empowered to continue to have a creative and joyful life with a little bit of infectious particles in my body, but my immune system is is in control and with a little bit of cancer cells, but my immune system is in control. That's my definition for health. Yeah, I love it. I love that definition. And, And what I hear you speaking on is basically quality of life, right? If you have, if you're symptom free or, or, symptom less or very few symptoms right and you and you had a tumor for example but that tumor wasn't in your colon it wasn't blocking your ability to remove stool from your body right it wasn't um you know pressing up against the frontal lobe of your brain and causing cognitive issues if it you know most cancers are like you said of the breast now prostate can be aggressive and can cause some issues and some symptoms but many 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 millions of cancers in fact actually People who have cancer or who've had cancer have very few, if any, symptoms. Certainly right. not until stage four or until it's metastasized and maybe okay. it's in the bone yeah. and maybe it's painful, yes. et cetera, right? So I'm not downplaying somebody who has cancer that, that has pain or symptoms. It certainly exists, but you can live, and I know people who've lived with tumors for years and their quality of life was amazing because yeah. they chose to implement all of these holistic lifestyle tenets, which actually gave them more energy, more clarity of mind, gave them more fulfillment in life. And they started exercising more and eating better. You eat better, you feel better, you sleep better. You know, they, they dialed into a more uh, spiritual, purposeful driven life, which brings you joy and fulfillment. And over time, that tumor actually stopped growing. And in some cases, it starts regressing, right? Because you're doing all the things that actually allow your body to uh, eliminate the cancer. So you know, we're not saying that's guaranteed and, and for everybody, but that's, that's what I hear you speaking on is, look, at the yeah. quality of life. Now, what, exactly. happen, what happens with a lot of people who follow conventional 
medicine for cancer is the quality of life gets completely destroyed, right? And people think of hair falling out, that's cancer. That's not cancer, that's conventional treatment. That right. is your immune system being destroyed. That is your, your hair literally falling out because those drugs are so toxic to your body. And so, I, I, and I don't want to come across as someone who's against conventional medicine because I'm not. You know, you got a parasite that won't go away no matter what you do. You know, there's some anti-parasitic drugs you could take for a couple of weeks and boom, you're, you're good to go, right? Like there are some, penicillin has been a lifesaver. There are some, some drugs, as you said, for cancer that can be helpful. There's some off-label drugs that can be helpful, right? With an integrative approach. Um, certainly I get in a car wreck and my arm gets cut off. Pray to God that never happens, but I want to be in a, I want to be in a surgeon's office right away getting treatment. You know what I mean? Um, so conventional medical, but when we're talking about lifestyle related chronic diseases, this is where we see the least effectiveness. Um, and so you're a medical doctor yourself. Let's talk a little bit about your background, you know, as a medical doctor, what got you into holistic medicine? Well, as a kid at, at school and eventually at grammar school, I was interested in life sciences, biology, chemistry, psychology, eventually. And I, I found it fascinating to study what the human condition is about and what it needs for a human body to stay healthy. Um, and when I was a kid, I, I had a good friend who's, whose father was a holistic naturopathic doctor in the town I, I grew up in, in Ulm in southern Germany. And um, I was fascinated by his father's knowledge about herbs and, and healthy food and, and uh, homeopathy and naturopathic medicine and energy medicine, uh, movement therapy integrated with uh, spiritual aspects of health and healing. So that became a very interesting and intriguing uh, figure for me in my life that I looked up to and said, well, this is something I would like to do in my life. And that's the the way I choose to continue with I studied medicine uh, in in Ulm in southern Germany. I started in 1984, and seven years later I got my degree from uh, University of Ulm, and I made a PhD in psychotherapy, and uh, worked uh, for some years in urology and psych psychiatry at the university clinic. But then um, I found out that this is not what I wanted to continue with. Uh, this reductionistic philosophy didn't fit any longer with me. In fact, it didn't fit from the beginning. Um, and so after two years of, of practicing medicine at the university clinic in Ulm, um, I left the university world and uh, studied holistic medicine at a medical doctor in the vicinity that I knew from, from uh, many years back in time and attended to her seminars in holistic medicine. And, and then a few years later, I started my own uh, private practice offering naturopathic uh, uh, therapies and a, a naturopathic holistic approach. And ever since that day, um, there was not one month where, or I could probably say one week where I didn't learn something new about the complexity of life and what, uh, what, what can be used um, to help people to regain their inner balance, to regain their power and, and to work uh, with their self-healing capacity. And throughout the last 25, 30 years, I went into many different corners of holistic medicine. I studied 
um, uh, detoxification pathways, nutritional medicine, um, plant-based medicine, um, immunology, uh, uh, physical devices like magnetic field uh, stimulation uh, for improvement of microcirculation and detoxification, etc., etc. Hyperthermia, which is a very powerful tool in the toolbox of a holistic doctor uh, to work with heat or with warmth to create fever under controlled circumstances. Hyperthermia, really a big chapter also in my book because it's it's uh, a wonderful energy therapy technique that you can add to many other uh, techniques and make them stronger. So it's a good synergy partner together with uh, Brock-based treatments. Now let's, now let's talk about hyperthermia for a little bit there. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. it because uh, one, you know, if, if not facilitated safely under proper guidance, it could be very dangerous, right? But at the same time, hyperthermia works because cancer cells die under extreme heat. Isn't that right? That is right. But again, I need to add some more information um, the heat we need to kill cancer with only heat is pretty high. In centigrade, it would be 44, 45 degrees centigrade. That would be, I guess, around 110 Fahrenheit, which is a lot. And the problem is, how can we um, get the cancerous tumor to that temperature level without doing too much harm around it? So that, right. that's... Right, now, now you're, talk, you're talking about heating up the inside of the body, right? Yeah. The 110, which is, we're not talking about external heat, like going into a sauna at 170 degrees, uh, you know, to heat up the internal part inside, of the yes, body. The that's where things get tricky and potentially dangerous, right? Yeah. So uh, what I learned in the last 15 years by attending conferences on hyperthermia treatments is that hyperthermia is many things at the same time. It's a, it's a detox uh, therapy. It's a, a way to stimulate our immune system to wake up uh, damaged uh, immune cells. For instance, after uh, chemotherapy, it's, it's a, it's a, offers many benefits to the, to the one suffering from fatigue syndrome after chemotherapy. Um, uh, it's an enhancement for other therapies that you give parallel to it, like uh, intravenous injections and if that is vitamin c or or chinese wormwood or turmeric or a standard drug does not matter there are many studies published that if our oncology colleagues the oncologists if they would add hyperthermia to their standard chemotherapy programs they would get better results it's published in world-leading journals like the lancet and british medical journal but it's very little used because of a lack of sponsoring and no lobby um, but that hyperthermia is an add-on therapy that enhances the pharmaceutical effects of all parallel given treatments. And of course, we choose non-toxic drugs, but it could be used in a regular setup at an oncology clinic using standard chemotherapy. They could save dosages and they could um, give their patients a, a less... Um, uh, a less troublesome treatment experience with less side effects and faster recovery, but it's it's very little done. There, there were a, a few clinics, even in the United States, Duke University conducted studies with hyperthermia, MD Anderson did it, but then they turned it down again because of lack of financing. That was the only reason. So hyperthermia 
um, can be done in different ways. Um, one way would be general whole body hyperthermia with infrared lamps. We do that at our clinic uh, once a week for general detoxification, immune stimulation, general recovery uh, of damaged tissues, mostly because of a better oxygen turnover and, and uh, better detoxification. And as I said, enhancement of parallel given infusions. And then there is another way to work with hyperthermia that we call local hyperthermia, uh, where we use radio waves uh, with a special device and a special applicator that warms up the, the region where the tumor is located to higher temperatures. And that's what I meant in my, my in few minutes ago when I said we need high temperatures to achieve a direct cancer-killing effect from heat. And that is... Uh, inside the tumor, would, that would be at a temperature of around 43, 44 centigrade. And help me what that is in Fahrenheit. I guess it's around 110, 111 Fahrenheit, which is not so easily achieved. You need a special equipment, but this equipment is there. It's uh, available it's, uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, many countries allow their medical doctors to use it. Um, but some countries have difficulties to integrate it into their medical system because of very expensive studies that would be needed to approve it and to get federal approval. In your country, it would be the FDA that uh, would require uh, very expensive and large clinical studies to allow it to be used for everybody. And that we're far away from that. In Germany, the German-speaking countries, Switzerland, Austria, uh, where medical doctors are allowed uh, to use it as an add-on therapy. The law says as long as it does no harm to the patient and as long as the patient is fully informed and chooses to be treated with it, we have no legal issues in my country. So that's why we use uh, hyperthermia uh, for all our treatments as, a, as an enhancement strategy. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning in to this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. Dot com. All right, let's get back to the show. In both is the ways. device is the device you use? Is it what? What is it? What's the the device? It's a targeted device, right towards. Yes, the, the local hyperthermia device are very special uh, devices that are designed uh, by uh, um, biophysicists. Uh, there are companies in Italy, in Hungary, in Germany, in Japan that are specialized in this very special field of, of developing devices. They work uh, with a, a radio wave frequency of around 13.56 megahertz, which is a little lower than a microwave oven in a kitchen. Please don't use microwave ovens. They destroy <laughs> the healthy part of our food. But if you want to compare it with a device that you know of, it's a little bit like a microwave oven, but with a lower frequency. And the technique behind it is that uh, physicists found out some 30, 40 years ago that cancer cells go into resonance uh, at this frequency and resonance means they pick up the energy and transform the energy into heat. 
whereas healthy cells around the tumor do not resonate at this frequency and do not overheat. So if you have a liver metastasis and expose it to radio waves with one of these local uh, hyperthermia devices, you can warm up the metastasis inside the liver to around 44, 45 degrees centigrade. Again, I guess it's, it's above 110 Fahrenheit, 111 maybe, um, without doing harm to the healthy cells around. And that's a fascinating physical law. It's based on the law of resonance of the, the, the physical components and the, the absorption spectrum of a cancer cell is different compared to a healthy cell. And that's why we can expose the entire liver. We take that as an example to the radio waves, but only the where the metastasis is, the resonance creates vibration and friction of the molecules and an overheating of the tumor. And the healthy part is hardly overheated at all. So we have a specific overheating of cancerous tissues inside our body with local hypothermia. And yes, we could use it this as a standalone treatment, uh, but it is even more effective if we combine it with infusions parallel to to the hypothermia treatment. So a standard therapy, hypothermia uh, infusion, uh, is that we uh, work on for one hour on on uh, the region where the tumor is, is located. The applicators have sizes from, let's say, four inches to maybe 20 inches in diameter. So we can choose between different sizes of, of applicators and expose the region uh, to the harmless radio waves and where the tumor is, the radio waves uh, are transformed into heat, and that damages the tumors uh, together with the infusion that has a higher penetration in a warm body. That's a secondary, very important effect of hyperthermia. If you add uh, an infusion to it, you can expect a higher uptake of the drug where you want it to be in, inside the tumor because of the widening of this, uh, the blood vessels and a better perfusion or blood flow into the tumor. So it's a fascinating, harmless therapy that we use to enhance uh, the effect of our infusions. Well, and you're using natural infusions, which also, you know, these are plant-based yes. infusions yeah. that have anti-cancer properties, right? The, many of these uh -huh. things, whether it's high-dose vitamin C, or as you said, curcumin from turmeric, or, you know, there are many that have anti-inflammatory properties that have, yes. you know, that induce apoptosis, healthy cellular death, you know, help to kill the cancer cells, for example. Um, you know, blood angiogenesis, angiogenesis, yep. Reducing the blood flow supply to the cancer cells, to the tumors, for example. And, and you get these from the plants themselves, uh, right. which is fascinating. And then they don't have, uh, necessarily any side effects either. Yeah, hardly any, uh, plant-based infusion therapy does not come with any mentionable side effects. I mean, but we use high dosages of mistletoe extract and applied intravenously. And that's maybe the most powerful plant-based anti-cancer treatment we do. Um, and there is a growing uh, knowledge and experience with this relatively new field of using mistletoe extract, not only to, to balance the immune system uh, through an intra uh, subcutaneous injection, but now through an intravenous administration uh, with higher quantities and it's a it's a fantastic plant-based chemotherapy with very little side effects. Mm. Uh, if we talk about side effects and mistletoe, we see sometimes allergic reactions, skin reactions um, that we 
managed with an antihistamine. Um, so compared to the side effects of chemotherapy, it's almost nothing. Let me ask you this. In your years of clinical experience, um, what kind of case studies have you seen firsthand where someone came to you with a stage three or stage four cancer, any kind, and they they wanted to do 100% holistic? What What kind of case studies can you share where you literally saw the cancer completely reversed and no more cancer detect detectable do you see that often how often how many cases if you can think of or even share some uh some significant ones that would be of interest i have a few exceptional cases that qualify for, for what you just said but i would say it's it's an exception so the, and the problem or the difficult word you you gave me was completely and I must be totally honest and totally open that this does not happen so often. The complete disappearance, yeah, complete remission, no evidence of disease when you only use plant-based drugs and remedies and detox and, and lifestyle changes is not what happens too often in the kind of patients that I see. And, and the type of patients that call me are most of the time intensively pre-treated uh, so they have, in average, a year or a couple of years intensive chemotherapy, immunotherapy drugs uh, behind, radiation, surgery, not the best food. So the type of cancer that I see, the type of patients that I see um, is a difficult group of cancer patients that are intensively pre-treated and come to my clinic in a stage four, sometimes I would say stage four plus, yeah. They, they're very, they're very sick. They've been sick for a long time. On top of that, their immune systems have been completely wiped out by the treatments, and they yeah. basically contact you as a last hope. Exactly. I have a few exceptions when patients come a little earlier, and I would say 70-80% come intensively pre-treated in the, in the latest stage, and maybe 20% come a little earlier. Um, and some very few patients come uh, when they have not received any traditional treatment at all. Um, and again, the most challenging word you gave me was complete disappearance. And if that was so easy, I would be more than glad. But I've been working in this field now for more than 25 years. And that's why my answer is, I do not aim at no evidence of disease. If it happens, everybody is happen, happy and we thank God and we bow deeply that it happened. But I ate a little lower um, and I have reasons to do that. And what I mean is I aim at stability with a good quality of life. And I lower the pressure of those of my patients who come in stage four with multiple metastases intensively pre-treated worn down immune system because of chemotherapy and say, well, I wished I could give you the cure, but most likely I can't give you the cure, but let's do everything possible to add many valuable years to your life with a good quality of life. And let's accept that it's about thriving with cancer. And it's unlikely that you ever will be in no evidence of disease. This is a top message, but it's an honest message. And it makes the work 
easier and it it lowers the pressure of my many of my dear patients where this is just a very realistic assessment i have nothing against a complete remission i have nothing against a spontaneous remission but it doesn't happen too often um and with this mindset i have a growing number of patients who have been in their fourth in their fifth in their eighth in their tenth in their fifteenth year thriving with cancer and that is the message out to our audience today that there is a secondary goal worthwhile living for and working for which is a good life with cancer accepting that the complete disappearance of cancer might be very very difficult or just unlikely to happen and what i speak about right now is stage four multiple metastasis chronic cancer and so why do I bring this mindset and why do I speak with my patients so openly and honestly? Because I learned that if you don't do it, you are in a dangerous spot. You might risk your life by believing that if I just do one more chemotherapy, I must hit back, hit back aggressively and then, then I will win the war against cancer. And my message is, Wait a moment, it's not a war. It's about your life. It's about protecting your valuable life. We're not in warfare. We try to achieve the complex balance of life and add many, many good things to your life so that you get back your healthy balance and can live in harmony together with a little bit of cancer. So how many have I seen um, in... in uh, Complete remission, a few in my life, I would say less than 10 in my entire life, complete remission from only naturopathic treatments. And every patient in this category is a little miracle. Yeah, To reverse wow. stage three, stage four cancer down to non-visible is a fantastic result, but it's impossible to to create it like we created a thing. It's It's... It's beyond uh, science, actually, I would say. To, if, I, if I turn your question into an easier one, how many do respond with a remission, with a partial remission, with an improvement of quality of life, uh, with better blood values, lower tumor markers, um, continuation of, of being able to live an active life based on naturopathic holistic treatments? I would dare to say the number is 80 90%. Wow. And, and I mean, what, that's incredible. But you see, it's a big difference. If you ask me complete disappearance, no evidence of disease or reduction of the symptoms, reduction of the markers, reduction of the measurable tumor sites with naturopathic treatments. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, so answer to the first question, rare answer to the second question if i modify your question a little bit and make it a little easier yeah how many go into remission how many can expect an improvement of vitality and and even measurable blood parameters like liver values blood values tumor markers i dare to say the number is is high if you do it by the book and if you don't come a few weeks before your life ends because of toxicity and the collapse of your body because of of, of exploding cancer if you still have a chance and at the same time are in stage three or, or stage four then the chances are 
in the range of 70, 80, 90% uh, to expect a good result. And then the question is, how do we maintain the good result? What is needed to keep this good result alive? So first, I want to just say, you know, that's, that's, that's an incredible milestone to, to share with people that with, you know, a holistic approach, you can, you can see, you can potentially see some incredible results of improved quality of life, you know, reduction of cancer or, and, or biomarkers. Um, and, and as you said, focus on a better quality of life for longer, for more years, even conventional medicine, even chemotherapy, radiation, there are no, there are no studies that I'm aware of that show that high of percentages of improval of the uh, cancer, maybe specific cancers, you know, testicular cancer with chemotherapy, I think has a 50% um, improvement of a five-year survival rate. Leukemias. When they do those, yeah, leukemias, and, but when they do those studies, they don't ever, ever look at quality of life. All they look at is, did you survive past five years? They don't care what happened after that. Or if the cancer went into remission or complete uh, NED, no evidence of disease, did it come back six years later? And now it's metastasized to the lymph nodes and the bones and you're stage four, right? They don't look at that in those studies. And so people are really misled with a lot of those studies. But even you're probably aware of, one of the largest, you know, meta analysis done on chemotherapy improvement of five-year survival. And, numbers. Yeah, and it's about two point three percent, right? Exactly. right? When you look at twenty-two adult malignancies, it's about two point three percent improvement of five-year survival. Looking at chemotherapy as a primary treatment for cancer. That's a poor result. And let's drop another number. Um, everybody talks about immune therapy. And the, the word itself is, is misleading because my patients, when they hear immune therapy, they believe it's, it's something good for their immune system. But what our colleagues call immune therapy are blockers that are manufactured in a, in a way that includes uh, immune cells to produce uh, antibodies. And it's blocking agents. Again, they block something. They block checkpoints and, and make the immune system more aggressive towards everything, the cancer, but also healthy cells. Or they block a, an enzyme, uh, a kinase or a thyrosine kinase, uh, a protein kinase. And um, let me drop a number that tells it in a, in a second. And uh, it's published uh, in a British medical journal, uh, by Charles Swanton, uh, a London oncologist, a prestigious uh, scientist and, and uh, medical doctor and oncologist at London University, published two or three years ago. Um, and he summarized uh, the survival rate gain from uh, the 50-plus immunotherapy drugs. It's mentioned in my book, by the way. I, I, I have the reference in, 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 in the introduction chapter. Um, and the number the survival gain in average of these new immunotherapy drugs is 2.3 months, 2.3 um, months extra life based on these drugs. And they came, they come with substantial side effects, uh, inclusive lethal side effects. Yeah, you can, after a checkpoint inhibitor treatment, um, some patients have died from uh, aggressive autoimmune side effects, uh, uh, bleedings, uh, colon bleedings, hepatitis, autoimmune, 
uh, reactions in various parts of their body. And it's it's amazing that we finance it. These therapies cost an average a hundred to two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a patient per treatment cycle. And the net gain is 2.3 months in average, inclusive some patients who die before they would have died from their disease from the side effects. It's a mind-boggling fact. Wow. So so do you think they just used the term immunotherapy to kind of co-opt the 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 realization that you know the immune system is essential for fighting cancer uh we're gonna call it immunotherapy to make it sound much more natural and kind of get people who want a natural approach because we know the numbers of people who have been learning about natural medicine and naturopathic medicine holistic medicine have been increasing significantly year over year as people become more educated and they realize, hey, there are alternative options. There are healthy options that I don't have to destroy my body with. And so do you think they just kind of came up with that term immunotherapy to kind of, you know, I don't well, know. Well, I find, it, I find it very interesting that that uh, doctors speak about immunotherapy and the first thing a patient perceives, oh, that's something more natural. That's something that has to do with my immune system. But the fact is, if you take one of the big names, Keytruda, uh, Pembrolizumab. It's a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, why is it called immunotherapy? Because it's an antibody. The chemical pharmaceutical mechanism it, it acts uh, like is an antibody, but it's an artificially produced antibody that comes from a laboratory and that um, blocks the breaks in our immune system. Um, so with, a br- with, with an unblocked immune system, our immune system is very aggressive and attacks uh, cancer cells, but any, but every other cell too. It's only a question of time and dosage uh, when the patient develops autoimmune side effects, mm. and and that is sold under the name of immune therapy. That's very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. So another question is okay. Uh, going back to catching a cancer early, like a stage one, have you seen better results with a holistic approach? course totally different world um time works against uh, success rates yeah the longer you have lived with uh, cancer in an undetected form uh, and with your lifestyle uh, ongoing that obviously changed your uh, terrain and your vitality system to a system that supports cancer growth that's how everything starts yeah uh, again we all we do have cancer inside our body. The change that happens between living with cancer and no symptoms and no diagnose and be becoming a cancer patient is the changes happened in our terrain. It's the toxins, it's the inflammation, it's the lack of oxygen, it's the lack of nutrients and the 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 stress that blocks the immune system, et cetera. The 12 vitality fields described in my book. Um, so the longer this process has gone on, the more difficult it becomes to reverse it. And that is one of the big problems uh, that we have and why we can't reverse cancer in everybody when the disease is detected very late. Uh, um, Ovarian cancer, for instance, there is hardly any ovarian cancer patients that is uh, diagnosed in a stage one because it does not give any symptoms. Yeah, And stage two and stage three local and and uh, metastasis in the vicinity of the, the original tumor um, 
is a very, very short period of time. And then whoop, automatically, if a few days later, it's already stage four in ovarian cancer. So most patients with ovarian cancer are diagnosed in stage four. That's how their journey begins. And that's, of course, very late. Then the problems and the mismatch of, of, of the inner uh, uh, equilibrium between, let's say, acidity and alkalinity, pH level, uh, uh, oxygenation, um, inflammation control, uh, gut issues, microbiome issues, toxicity issues have have grown to an extent where the problem the problems are very very big. So that is why we sometimes come so late and need a surgeon, and sometimes also a radiotherapist if 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 the problems are so big that the patient is in the risk zone to die within the next weeks, then you have to gain time. You have to reduce the symptoms and use the reductionistic approach to not die within the next weeks. But then, please, as soon as possible, or if possible, already parallel to the reductionistic uh, treatments, you, you need to care for your vitality system, for your detoxification, immune system, inflammation control, nutritional support, etc. So, Complementary medicine wants to bring these two realms together, the tumor-focused or the symptom-focused and the terrain-based holistic approach at the same time. And yes, your question again, early stages can be cured uh, and the chances to get somebody back into the healthy balance are much bigger than in late stages. But the tragedy is that some Many diagnoses are given when the stage is already in three or four, and the naturopathic holistic doctor like me sees patients when the re the regular oncologist says, "Oh, sorry, there is not so much any left to do for you now. It's about palliative care." And then patients wake up and call us, and that's very late. And my daily prayer is that patients wake up a little earlier, and that's also one of the the the. Reasons why I wrote my book that please raise your awareness as early as possible. Um, actually, pre-care would be the best yeah, to care for a healthy life so you do not develop cancer as a disease and keep the few cancer cells under control. That would be the, the very best. And that's where the success rate is probably the highest. But at least call us as early as possible once you're diagnosed with cancer and don't wait until there is nothing else for you to get in a regular oncology ward. Yeah, some good words of wisdom right there, which is a great transition into where I want to go next, which is cancer prevention. And cancer prevention, from my research and experience, is basically very similar to heart disease prevention, diabetes prevention, autoimmune disease prevention, Alzheimer's prevention, and just living a long, healthy, vital life with as little disease as possible with energy and vitality to, to really enjoy life, right? There's so much. I, I look at all these diseases as basically branches from the same tree where they, they manifest in the body slightly differently, but they're, they, the underlying causes of those diseases I just mentioned are so similar, right? And so, so are the prevention approaches uh, or prevention solutions and the solutions for helping the body to heal itself from those diseases. So what I'd love to ask you is for somebody who 
um, is either concerned about cancer, maybe they say it runs in their family, they just don't want a cancer diagnosis, they just want to live long and healthy, they want to prevent cancer. What are your top three lifestyle approaches that people should be implementing on a daily basis uh, for, for helping their bodies to, to prevent a cancer diagnosis? Yeah, thank you for that question. Very, very important, very important question. So um, let me mention three things, and I believe they're equally important, and it doesn't matter where I start with. Um, food, food matters. Healthy diet, healthy food. In average, uh, the lifestyle around food and food habits in your and in my country, in the Western world, is too rich in pro-inflammatory food ingredients. We eat too much animal-based food, too much meat. We eat too much starch and empty calories in form of white bread and fries and potatoes and pasta. Uh, We eat too many artificial uh, food supplements like sweeteners, aspartame is carcinogenic. What you find in Diet Coke and Diet Soda in chewing gums and in all the light products is carcinogenic. Stop eating light products and stay away from soda pops at all times. Um, Drink more water and eat a more plant-based diet. Uh, You find many ideas and guidelines in my book. I I, I recommend a modified Mediterranean diet it is also proven to be the longevity diet. Uh, Walter Longo from California, a professor in gerontology and long, long, uh, longevity science, um, explains in great details in his books uh, why a modified Mediterranean diet is very good for us. It's a little bit of, of animal food, not too much, but from fresh and pure sources like small fish, a little bit of, of uh, animal-based food. Uh, like a little bit of lamb or uh, beef from grass-fed cattle, but smaller amounts, not the big sizes that I'm used to when I visit the United States. That's far too much red meat. Um, Or um, uh, plant-based food and fresh and good quality, like salads and legumes and, and berries and smoothies and oils, not to forget the healthy oils like... Uh, um, uh, both um, uh, omega-6 fatty acids from olive oil, but also the omega-3 fatty acids that normally are short in, in Western world diet. Almost everybody uh, today who does not supplement omega-3 fatty acids suffers from a, a mismatch between the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. So we need uh, cod liver oil or fish oil, uh, like five gram a day would be excellent. Um, we need more fibers, we need more raw food to get healthy bacteria into our system. Uh, I recommend fermented food like sauerkraut or chimchi or or uh, fermented uh, uh, beans or fermented um, legumes. Uh, every country has its speciality in my home country. It's sauerkraut uh, that gives a lot of lactic lactobacilli to, to the microbiome. And it's very healthy for digestion and and, uh, uh, powerful uh, immune function in my guts. So first answer, healthy diet. And you can learn more in in various books. On the the diet approach, before we move to the next one, um, how how much do your patients adhere to these diet 
principles and recommendations? I guess I'm fortunate because my patients are very smart and highly motivated. Uh, they adhere very well to these uh, dietary recommendations. Now, do you have a do you have a a principle on kind of uh, macronutrient ratios? So, uh, roughly a certain percentage of fat versus a certain percentage of carbohydrates versus a certain percentage of protein. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I recommend a low-carb diet uh, for everybody, inclusive myself, to stay healthy, to get control over inflammatory diseases, um, inclusive cancer. And a low-carb diet is defined by less than 100, excuse me, less than 100 grams of carbohydrates a day. And it's not only about carbohydrates, but also about the quality of carbohydrates of course, so-called slow carbohydrates with a low glycemic index with the abbreviation GI. Everybody can download a glycemic index list uh, online. Food items with a lower GI than 60 are more recommended than the ones with a higher GI. So it's not only about carbohydrates as such, but the quality of carbohydrates go for the slow ones with a low GI and in total, around 100 gram a day is what I recommend. Um, put an emphasis on proteins, especially if you suffer from cancer, and especially, especially if you have gone through chemotherapy, because weight loss is a dangerous procedure for patients in, in oncology. Actually, 40% of patients suffering from oncological diseases die at the end of their life from starvation, from weight loss, from the consequences of weight loss. It's called cachexia or sarcopenia. Uh, sarcopenia means that at the very end of, of uh, one's life, one can live from one's own muscles. The muscle masses shrink because the body is so, um, so low in proteins that, that we dissolve our own muscles. Sarcopenia, very dangerous. Um, so to avoid by all means and Cancer patients need more proteins. The best way to get proteins uh, in your diet in an easy to digest way, if you are a little low in your body weight, if you have to, if you struggle with keeping your body weight stable, is to add plant-based protein powder and mix that with a fresh smoothie. Smoothies are great. They contain colloidal minerals and vitamins and enzymes. But they're not that rich in protein. So if you if you make a delicious smoothie um, and add a few tablespoons of a protein powder with, for instance, rice protein extract or pea protein or hemp protein, you get an energy drink that is just great. Uh, rich in proteins plus all the fresh minerals and colloidal substances and enzymes, etc., that you have in a fresh uh, uh, smoothie. So I, I love really that. I love the smoothie recommendation. Actually, I made a smoothie this morning. I grow my own organic greens, uh, all anti-cancer greens, specifically from brassica and certain herbs and things like that. And I make a smoothie with it and add some, some organic protein, plant-based protein powder as well. And I, I actually... For those who want the recipe, I did a video on my YouTube channel called My Favorite Anti-Cancer Smoothie Recipe. You can go watch that for free and get that recipe. But it's one of my – I add in blueberries as well, which we know yeah. are you know, super high in antioxidants. One of the you know, top anti-cancer fruits, I would say, right? The berries from the berry Absolutely. family. 
Don't forget Berries the ginger. Fantastic. Uh-huh. And then flax seeds or hemp seeds or chia seeds for the omegas and also helps with heart health protection and good fiber, right? Um, all these things are great to add in. And, and these are easy to add in every day. Yeah, um, delicious taste and does not take so much time. Get a good juicer. It's a life investment. And, and make these healthy smoothies. I can, yeah, I agree 100%. So on the protein, so uh, just so I know, on your, I'm just curious here. I, I know these aren't exact numbers for every person, but let's, you're talking about the average person. At what body weight are you talking about? Like 70 kilos, like 172 kilogram by definition would be the average body weight. And that would be um, 165, I think, pounds or something. Yeah. That would be the 100 gram carbs a day that would qualify for less than 100% carbs a day that would qualify for low carb diet. That's for an average standard. Now, person. are you, you're not talking ketogenic diet, are you? No, ketogenic is when your body is so low in, in carbs that your liver starts to produce ketone bodies as an alternative fuel for our brain and the muscles too. Um, and that starts at a carb intake of around 50 gram a day or less. So that would be half of the carb recommendation that I do for everybody. Okay. Yes, there is a, a corner in my in my toolbox for ketogenic diet. Some patients do well with ketogenic diet, others don't. It's not mm. anything that I can recommend everybody because I've, I've seen many patients struggling with a ketogenic diet, especially the ones who have lost weight and are low in their general body vitality, especially after many turns of, of chemotherapy. You have to be careful if you are too weak, that your body has difficulties to process and digest so much fat and proteins and so little carbs. So you, that's where the individual counseling becomes very, very important. What is perfect for one must not be the best choice for, for, for another patient. If you can afford it body weight wise um, to lose a few kilograms or pounds, then a ketogenic diet might be something that you benefit from, especially in combination with chemo radiation. Yeah, I mean, I do work with patients who want to get both uh, my complementary program and standard programs at their local university, and I can't be totally against it. I'm, I'm open for whatever the patient wants me to contribute to. And in some situations, it makes sense with radiation. Think about uh, aggressive brain tumors that are on the way to kill the patient. Then, then you need radiation. It would be, I, I, I cannot say that this patient can uh, uh, avoid radiation. And especially radiation of brain tumors, primary brain tumors or brain metastasis um, react very, very positively on ketogenic diet because the brain is so sugar dependent. Right. And that grow inside our brain are even more sugar dependent. So that ketogenic diet is a splendid way to support radiation therapy or all kinds of therapies that are done for brain tumors and brain metastasis. That would be an example where I recommend ketogenic diet for some months. Yeah. An example for, for, a few, for, for a few months, so you would cycle on and off it potentially. Yes. Yes, and and uh, get a keto mojo and measure the ketone body so that you are sure that you are in ketosis because that varies a lot between individuals how how much carbs you tolerate and how flexible your metabolic system is. <clears throat> to find so, out the total, uh, 
of how many carbs you can eat to, to, to stay in ketosis. You need keto sticks to measure it. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At HealingLife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at HealingLife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to HealingLife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, gotcha. And the um uh or a breath, you can do a breath version to test yeah. your ketones as well, right? Yeah. Well, now, I have this keto mojo which is a little stick and you you put a drop of blood on it and then it's it's like measuring blood glucose but it measures ketone bodies in our blood. That's for me the safest way to measure it. Which is more accurate than the, I think the 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 breathing version one is is measuring the amount of uh is it acetate that you're yes. breathing out acetate. yeah and so i think it's 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 not as accurate as a blood it's not test as accurate as keto sticks uh yep. that's why i recommend keto sticks. so uh 72 kilogram person which is about 158 pounds 100 grams which is about 400 calories of of uh of carbs a day which still carbs be... what about protein what about protein uh proteins Per day for an average person, I would recommend normal body weight to keep a, a, a healthy normal body weight. I would go for 50 gram of proteins a day. Wow. So only one. So uh, 50 grams. So you're talking uh, that's times four. So it's 200 calories of protein. It's not very much protein. 158. So that's a third. So, you know, um, so it's a lower amount of protein on the protein end. And the rest needs to be covered with uh, healthy fat. would be fat, right? So you're talking 600 calories. What does an average person need on a day? 158, 2,000 calories, 2,500? Yeah, 2,200, 2,400. So 2,200, I'm just trying to do the math here. So 2,200 minus 600 gives us, uh, help me with the math, uh, 1,600. So 1,600 calories of fat, and uh, one gram of fat is actually nine divided by nine. So 177 grams of fat, potentially. So um, I'm just doing the math out loud just to kind of get a visual of this. So carbs, 100 grams, protein, 50 grams, and fat, 177 grams. So again, you're talking lower, lower carbohydrate, but not ketogenic. A uh, little bit lower protein, but not... Um, so I'll figure out the percentages in a second because the percentage is what matters because 
I'm 6'2", I weigh 215 pounds, and I'm an athlete that trains four hours well, a day. You need right? <laughs> so, so my protein is closer to one gram per body pound, yeah. right, per oh. pound of body weight. So I have a lot more protein. but And I have a lot more carbs because I'm a high-intensity athlete, weightlifting, CrossFit, et cetera. But, but this is – what's that? But this, the 50 gram was probably the minimum uh, and – there is there is uh, uh, space for a little more. Um, I, I I'm, I'm more particular <clears throat> and interested in in reducing the carbs to a hundred or a little lower. And I actually I don't ask my patients to put any piece of of food on a balance and to calculate out the proteins. Um, how, do you, how do you do it for people who are not tracking macros? Do you just like uh, say take a plate and like portions like how do you yeah so someone that's like hey obviously we're talking about we're not talking about me about the six two you know athlete that trains hours a day we're talking about cancer prevention or cancer healing for that matter so you know these these numbers make sense and um or i think they're fascinating anyway and i want to explore it further but for someone who's not going to track their macros like how do you advise them on kind of staying roughly close to these numbers I ask my patients to use their intuition to go into a grocery shop to look for the fresh food department and to go for the color and to work with their body feeling and intuition and find out what they like the most and within this realm of, of healthy food items. I, try, I tell them, stay away from pork, stay away from processed food, stay away from everything that is a light product. Um, I do not ask my patients to put everything on a balance. Um, uh, I allow them to eat two times a week uh, animal products like very good quality beef from grass-fed cattle or lamb. Uh, another day, maybe fish or poultry uh, from an organic farm because poultry, cheap quality, comes with a lot of... <laughs> Of, of chemicals like antibiotics and, and hormones that we don't like. So biological quality is very important. Two days animal food, uh, five days uh, more plant-based food would be my, my optimal choice. Uh, fermented soy products are okay. Tofu, uh, fermented soy is, is what I, I welcome in a diet. And I leave it to the patient to find out how much of this and how much of that, keeping an eye on the balance, as long as the body mass index is in the green range. I don't want my patients to measure uh, uh, their food in grams. I, I encourage them to eat more proteins when they're underweight, when the bo body mass index goes below a 20 I ask them to, to add more proteins, more smoothies, more avocados, more flaxseed oil, more ghee, etc. Um, and the rest is up to their tolerance, what they can ingest, uh, what the, the uh, body impedance measurement shows. Yeah, we do a body impedance measurement to measure uh, muscle mass, fat mass, and water. Um, and I don't need to tell them the exact number in grams. Gotcha. So you're so you're leaving a little bit more up to the patient to kind of follow some guidelines and principles. So many of them may 
come close to these numbers, many of them may not at all, right? So like yeah. like this is, for, for people who for people who kind of nerd out on on numbers like I do. Um and, and, and who do who do track and care about this kind of stuff from time to time. I don't track every day. I'll, what I'll do is I'll track macros for maybe a few weeks at a time just to see where I'm at. And then and then I'll go months and months and months without tracking anything. And I kind of same thing. I go by feel, I go by intuition, I go by yeah, roughly this is what I need, you know, for protein, for fat, for carbohydrates. Like I said, I'm on a much higher carbohydrate diet, um, so I'm eating way more carbs every day. But I, you know, th- again, this is for me. I'm not recommending this for anybody tuning in right now. And uh, But I eat a whole food, plant-based diet. I eat, you know, fresh, as much fresh food as possible, the least amount of processed food as possible, pretty much no processed sugar. I do honey. I do... Um, you know, some stevia, some organic stevia, things like that. But primarily, it is fresh food. It's from the garden. It's from the the living area in the grocery store, right? Um, sometimes I'll have little organic cereal or something that I definitely would consider processed, but always adding in fresh berries and bananas and you know, fresh fresh foods. We do a lot of beans. We do a lot of organic tofu. Um, greens a lot of greens these kinds of things because i think if you really i think the the core principle here that i hear you saying and that i think is really important is make sure your food is fresh real food no matter what you do like i think that's principle number one right the least amount of processed fake food is possible exactly exactly yeah. So for people, so I did the math. So carbs are roughly 18%, let's say 20% roughly, protein roughly 9 to 10%, and then fat roughly around 70%. So if people do want to track and do want to, you know, that's kind of the numbers you're, you're generally looking at. But, but again, if people are just going by feel, they're going to be all over the map because, you know, eating a big thing of beans is going to give you a huge amount of carbs, a decent amount of protein, very little amount of fat, right? Or eating a big handful of nuts and seeds is going to give you a ton of fat, little protein, no carbs. Yeah. So people are going to be all over the place. Right. So that was the first answer, uh, what I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Second is try to live a life um, where rhythm supports vitality. Make sure that most of your days you live with a good circadian rhythm. Go to bed at plus minus the same hour. Make sure you get seven to eight hours of sleep. Um, Not very much more, but not less than seven. And avoid to disrupt your circadian rhythm. Very important. Because the brain controls the hormonal system and the immune system and exhausted brain acts against your health, produces more inflammatory messengers, lowers your immune system and weakens your body. So sleep and rhythm, very important. Maybe talk about, maybe share a little bit about how people can improve their quality of sleep and what, I mean, we've taught what I talk about this all the time. I know you cover it in depth in your book. People can go deeper there. Uh, we've covered this deeply in my master class, the importance of sleep and entering into autophagy and deep sleep, which is helping to clean up the the abnormal cells and cellular waste and helping to repair damaged cells, all these incredible things that help fight against cancer, fight against premature aging and other diseases. So, you know, the reason why we need that sleep, everybody knows, oh, I need better sleep, but 
so few people actually take sleep seriously. I knew I, I know I was one of them, you know, until just a number of years ago where it was like, I really need to take my sleep seriously, especially as I became much more interested in being an athlete and I'm constantly tearing down my body all day long. Um, it's like, I really need to repair my body and sleep became crucial for me. And as I researched it much deeper and realized, wow, it's, it's essential for fighting cancer, for fighting neurological disease, for helping fight against autoimmune disease, for helping activate, you know, the, the natural healing aspects of the, of the entire body also, um, helps to, uh, reduce all cause mortality. All these things are so important with sleep. So maybe, yeah, you know, dive in a little bit on the importance of sleep and then what are some kind of things people can do to improve their sleep? Yeah, avoid blue light after 8 o'clock in the evening because blue light switches the brain on and causes our brain to stay active. Um, use screensavers, use glasses with a blue filter so that you do not expose your eyes, which are part of your brain. The eyes belong to the nervous system. Um, that you don't expose your eyes to blue light and don't watch the most exciting, uh, uh, stressing movies late at, at evening times if you want to sleep well. Um, spend rather an hour or two with a book, write the, uh, journaling, write down your important thoughts, write down three or five things you are grateful for what you have experienced this very day. Uh, write a few thoughts about what you want to do tomorrow. Do your journaling. Very, very, very uh, helpful, healthy habit to, to process what has been on your day and what, what bothers you. Write it down. Write down the good thoughts and the bad thoughts and practice journaling uh, instead of watching too much TV at nighttime. Calm down a little bit earlier uh, if you stay up and have conducted very complicated telephone calls and watched uh, very complicated stressing movies, don't expect your brain to go into the sleeping mode from one second to the other. It will not happen. It will it will uh, disrupt your, your sleeping pattern and it will, will cause your brain to have difficulties to fall asleep. Rather spend than a half an hour uh, outside in nature um, uh, and walk a few times around the corners where you live, uh, spend uh, uh, time in fresh air outside before you go to sleep, walk a little bit, write down the thoughts that bother you and that or that lift you up both, um, avoid TV and blue light at nighttime and go to bed. Best would be for most people to go to bed at around 10.30, between 10 and 11. If you have to go up at 6.30, which is maybe what an average person in a working situation needs to do. And that's because of the circadian rhythm, right? Because <laughs> the earlier we get to bed, actually, the the more cycles of uh, REM and deep sleep we can go through before midnight. And if we get to bed too late, like at midnight or later, even if you're sleeping in later, you're what I understand anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, is you actually – will have less of those deep sleep cycle stages that you Perfectly need. correct, yeah. And on the morning side, please expose your eyes to bright light yeah. as early as possible. Ideal would be you wake up at 6.30 um, and if it's not winter and you live on the north side of the globe, uh, go out and spend a minute in bright morning light. That's a, a starting signal 
for the circadian clock inside our brain that sets the clock and 14 to 16 hours later, you will get tired in a natural, harmonious way. If you do not spend at least a couple of minutes in bright light in morning time, you start the setup of your brain too late and you will not fall, be able to fall asleep as well as if you would have started your brain with a bright light signal. And that's the, the moment where you have to take off your glasses if your glasses have a blue filter as mine have. So in the morning, we need to get the blue light to switch on our brain. And the next thing I do when I wake up uh, on a morning is I drink uh, a glass of pure filtered water, about 250, 300 milliliters, because that's what I've lost during the night through my breath and through uh, perspiration. So I, I refill uh, my, my body with fresh water uh, that also stimulates uh, the production of urine so that I excrete the toxins that my body has processed during the night. I expose my eyes to some minutes of bright light. And if it's winter right now in Germany, it's dark at 6.30. So I switch on all uh, my light bulbs and I have a few light bulbs that have a good solar spectrum that imitates sunlight with a little bit of blue, which is good in the morning. Don't use the blue light or the light bulbs with the blue spectrum in the evening. That's where you that's where we should light up a candle and expose our eyes to yellowish, reddish light. Yeah, so just, just to clarify for people who don't know, blue light. So any light bulb that you have in your house that actually looks white, so it's putting off a standard white light it has the blue light spectrum in it so so people are like oh i don't have blue lights no you did you do have blue lights <laughs> they don't look blue but they have the blue light spectrum which is as you said it's actually stimulating cortisol production right which is what you want in the morning high levels of cortisol and in the evening you want your cortisol to go down and your melatonin incredibly potent antioxidant and we also know it's you know it helps us to sleep we want the melatonin to increase as which is if we were living out in nature with this natural cycle of the sun sun goes up you wake up sun goes down you get tired and get ready for bed today we don't live that way most of us unfortunately because of we have so many lights artificial lights and computer screens and all of that so finding that balance is is really yeah. important and if you enjoy coffee, um, I, I love coffee, but I'm also aware of that everything in moderation is, is best. So the first morning coffee is the best one if you, t if you ingest it or enjoy it at around 10 o'clock, not too early in the morning, because that's where we already have produced the cortisol. So caffeine switches on the adrenals and helps us to produce more uh, uplifting uh, steroids and cortisol. So the ideal way to enjoy coffee, both for the taste, but also with the physiological changes that comes with coffee would be uh, a cup at 10 o'clock. And then if you want to bridge the, the, the dip of energy uh, after uh, your lunch, a second cup at around two o'clock, that would be the ideal way to enjoy caffeine. Uh, we know today that caffeine in moderation and, of course, from a good quality organic uh, production um, is something that also stimulates uh, the liver detoxification. Um, but if you, if you uh, enjoy coffee later the day, then you block the natural sleeping hormones for another six hours. So a late coffee 
will block your your natural um, uh, way to eventually feel tired and go into sleeping mode, um, and that's not good. So coffee late morning and early afternoon uh, is the best way to enjoy it. And what, you're, what we're talking about there mostly is caffeine, right? And how caffeine um, affects the adenosine receptors, exactly. right? Which is the adenosine is the, it, it, it's what makes us feel that, that tiredness, that grogginess. Yeah. And it actually, caffeine blocks the receptor. So yeah. we, we get kind of a fake feeling of energy. Like, a, like in Chinese medicine, they call caffeine the... I think they call it the false fire, the fake fire, something like that. The basically the false energy, which, as you said, if it's first thing in the morning, which is what I've been doing, and I need to stop doing it, <laughs> is <laughs> I need to stop doing it. I'm 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 claiming that now because I I wake up and I first have a a big glass of green juice, organic green vegetable juice, and I take my supplements, and then. Uh, lately, I've been making like a like a latte uh, with some organic coffee and put in some uh, organic mushroom powder and some a uh, little bit of organic soy milk and some honey, and then I'll drink that and, and play a little chess and watch the watch the sunrise. Right, get that cortisol uh, yeah. pump in and watch the sun, which is just such a beautiful way to start the day. Um, I do a little bit of qigong and meditation and intention setting before that as well, but. I know now, and I've known for a while, I really need to push that coffee back a couple of hours, but it's hard, man. It's addicting. It's addicting, <laughs> right? It's like I, I get into my systems and my, my ways of doing things, and I'm just set in it, and it's like I know thinking of like, well, not having that coffee for two or three hours, yeah, that well, would you be. Could try a decaf if, if you like the bitter, sweet taste of a latte. Uh, so you avoid the caffeine at seven o'clock and postpone it a little bit and give you the caffeine treat at 10 or 11, where you just have more benefits from it than if you would use it already at seven in the morning. I'm going to do, I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to order organic. I'm making a note, decaf, uh, coffee beans. Now, isn't the decaf process like, don't they have to, I don't understand it fully. So I'm just. Uh, they they des it's a distillation. It's a, they they distill the caffeine at a certain temperature so that caffeine evaporates. That's how I. They don't use chemicals. They don't use chemicals to do it. Okay, okay. Uh, well, that's good. I'll, get, re I'll research it further. But I get organically certified decaf, um, and they wouldn't get the approval and the stamp for organically certified if they would add any chemical. So it's a procedure that uses steam uh, to evaporate the coffee at a certain temperature and then you what you what is left is a coffee bean without the coffee in inside and the caffeine is it a hundred percent gone or is there a little bit left? no it's not a hundred percent gone but it's like 90 something 95 so there there might be a tiny little bit but i mean maybe as much coffee in it as you find alcohol in a fresh apple juice Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so there's always a little bit, but um, it's, I learned from, from Paracelsus, the most famous doctor of his time. He lived in the 14th century in, in Switzerland and Germany. Uh, I learned from him that toxins are things that you have in too, in too big quantity. Only the quantity makes something a toxin. 
So decaf with a with a little remnant of zero point something caffeine is just neglectable. And as I said, a glass of apple juice that contains maybe zero point five percent of alcohol is also neglectable. That's not an alcoholic beverage. Right. So what I'm so the the new thing that I'm I'm wrapping my mind around getting ready to implement. Right. I'm always as I'm learning things over the years, I I experiment and implement them in my own life. Right. So I've been doing cold showers for 12, 15 years, right? 12, 15 years I've been doing cold showers and then a few years back I made an ice bath and so I do ice baths. I've been doing sauna for years and so I ended up getting a sauna and I love sauna, right? We could talk about sauna, ice baths, all of that. So these things I learned about, you know, plant-based diet and nutrition over a decade ago. So I went, you know, I, I eventually, you know, ate 100% plant-based. As I learned these things and the research behind them and then I experiment with myself and then I implement it. So the, the, the newer things that I'm getting ready to do are one, backing off caffeine for the first couple hours in the morning um, right. and, and maybe not even doing the, the, the decaf at all, just replacing it with some herbal tea or something like that. Green tea or herbal tea, yeah. Yeah, and then also starting with an ice bath first thing in the morning. So, you know, I have no problem doing it anytime later in the day, and especially I got my sauna cooking or whatever, and I know I can warm up or the sun's out or something like that. But first thing in the morning when it's cold, um, I, you know, there's some really interesting studies with ice bath that if you do it first thing in the morning or before you exercise, um, the benefits of it are, are um even increased exponentially and, and it wakes you up, right? I mean, it, it's going to immediately increase norepinephrine, which leads to dopamine increase and release. So which leads to immune system activation. So why wouldn't you want all that first thing in the morning do you do to your day? Do you do the, the Wim Hof breathing or, or what do you do? So I'll do the breath work. Like lately I've been doing the Wim Hof breathing in the sauna at the end of my sauna. Um, in the ice bath, I've always just done, um, deep relaxing breaths to calm my nervous system. And at first it would take me a minute or two to get relaxed. Just, just really deep out breaths to relax. Now I can get in the ice bath and in one breath, I'm completely relaxed, right? That took, but that took practice. That took practice. I, I'll guide people. I'll guide friends through it for their first time and just follow my breathing. You know, here's what you're going to feel like. You're going to feel like you're screaming. Your body wants to get out. Your everything about you is just tense up and tight, <laughs> right? They get in and, <laughs> and I'm like, follow my breath. <sighs> so what we're doing is learning to control the autonomic nervous system, right? Learning to control stressors in our life. You know, this really a valuable tool, but it's also um, being able to activate our own immune system through deep relaxation methods like deep breathing. And so with practice, literally, I can get in and in one breath, totally relaxed. Um, and so I don't do any other breathing. I haven't tried any other breathing than that inside the ice bath. Um, but it's still intense. I mean, the feeling's intense. For me, it's not so much getting in and sitting there for a few minutes and you know, I might move my hands sometimes to like intensify it because that definitely <laughs> creates even more intensity. It's getting out and not being able to warm up that uh, has been an issue for me. Like um, when I do it at night in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we didn't have, I didn't have a sauna. We wouldn't turn the heater on very often. And like even a warm shower wouldn't warm me up. You know, it was just like, 
that was brutal. <laughs> so kind of intensive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the thing is like if I can warm up after, maybe I just exercise or get in the sauna for a few minutes or something, then 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 it's no problem, you know. Um, but ice bath I think is incredible. Sauna obviously is incredible. I mean, we're talking about cancer, we're talking about the immune system, both these things activate a better immune system response, right? Yeah. So let me get to answer number three. You asked me for three things I would recommend everybody to stay healthy and hopefully not develop a cancerous disease. And the third round that we have to address is stress. Stress is the number one killer in modern societies. We already touched it a little bit when we talked about sleep because stress also affects our sleep. But stress itself is what we need to learn, to balance, to manage. Otherwise, we will die from the consequences of stress. Stress, everybody knows what it is, is something that you also can measure physiologically. That means the overexposure to sensory impulses to what you perceive what you get as information the overexposure to tasks you are asked to solve uh, causes a change of our body and most of all in our vegetative nervous system the vegetative nervous system is what controls our heartbeat our blood pressure our digestion our breathing uh, rhythm our uh, contractions of our ingest, uh, digestive tract muscles and everything, the urinary blood of the guts, um, everything. And um, scientists, biologists speak about two parts of the vegetative nervous system. And I guess everybody has already heard about these two branches. It's called the sympathetic or the parasympathetic system. And what stress does, it switches on the sympathetic nervous uh, system and that comes with the release of stress hormones, adrenaline, and the even more powerful uh, hormone called noradrenaline and cortisol. So modern man uh, is for two long periods of time in the sympathetic mode that dominates more and more. And that causes all the stress-dependent diseases, inclusive cancer, uh, high blood pressure, migraine, sleeping disorders, depression, and all the consequences of it uh, is based on or modified by stress. And the answer is relaxation techniques that switches on the, the uh, opponent of the sympathetic nervous system that's called the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system follows the flight and fight program. Uh, in our brain, we're still cavemen to a very high level. Uh, in our behavior, that means that if the telephone rings, if somebody comes in and gives me a new task and I'm busy with solving the other three tasks that I try to fix, uh, my brain goes into the flight and fight mode. I react as a caveman would react when a wild beast enters the cave or when an enemy enters his, his uh, field of attention. So... My body produces uh, all these hormones. My muscles get stiff. My vision gets more and more narrow. I get a tunnel vision. I don't see the complexity of life any longer. I, I, I see less and less of, of the reality. I get more and more stressed. My blood pressure goes up. And actually, I would like to hit my opponent with my fist or run away. That's how primitive my brain 
uh, is in its basal uh, way to react on stress. And my teachers at grammar school and university did not tell me so much about how to get out of this uh, stress reaction with this, which is a primordial behavior pattern that we all have in our brain. And that becomes more and more the dominant part of our life because we expose ourselves to more and more and more and more stimuli. So that's the problem that we need to solve. Stress clearly adds risk factors for cancer. There is no question any longer. Stress is one of the many, many reasons as important as food and weight control and physical exercise. And stress is a psychomental emotional phenomenon. And it becomes a, 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 a somatic problem in our body with high blood pressure, too much cortisol, impaired blood sugar control, impaired digestion, et cetera, et cetera. So what is the answer? The answer is less sensory stimulation and pauses where we either do physical exercise or meditation or something that switches on our creative mind in a playful, artistic way. The strategy that I recommend most of all is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. It was developed uh, by a professor in Massachusetts, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who's still very active. He retired from his uh, uh, assignment as a professor at Massachusetts University, but he still is active with workshops and lectures, and he has written a few splendid books that I warmly recommend. In my book, Holistic Cancer Medicine, um, I, ha I have a chapter where I explain it and give some basic exercises. It's easy to learn. It's not rocket science, and it's based on seven tenets uh, of mindfulness thinking. Um, and it's scientifically proven that it balances our vegetative nervous system. It lowers blood pressure, it lowers the production of stress hormones, it gives us a better sleep, it counteracts depression, and it adds joy and fulfillment to our life. So that's my third recommendation. Uh, on the same level, there's no hierarchy, food, rhythm, sleep, and then mindfulness-based stress reduction, which everybody can learn and then practice. It's something that you need to practice as much as you need to practice a physical exercise. It's good to know where the gym is and that, that you should lift some dumbbells and some weights to grow more muscles. But if you don't do it, your muscle will not grow. Same is true for mindfulness-based uh, uh, stress reduction. It's good to know what it is about. It's about appreciation, non-judgmental thinking, um, beginner, uh, uh, practice beginner's mind, look at things anew, get rid of your prejudice. It's about forgiveness. It's about patience. It's about um, widening your frame and, and to take new aspects into account when you look at the problem. Um, it's uh, Again, it's about non-judgmental thinking, more witnessing, less judgments. Um, and you need to practice it because we, I have not learned it um, as a kid. I have not learned it at school. Not, none of my teachers told me. Uh, Non-striving, another uh, tenant of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Practice non-striving at least as a component in your life. We just talked about ambitious health programs with physical training and ice bath and sauna and diet. But there is also a time for letting go all the expectations and relax 
and just breathe and be grateful what, for what you have achieved. And I had it on my lips when you spoke about all the numbers uh, uh, for the perfect diet to say, yes, the perfect diet, there is a perfect diet, but there is also a time for enjoying the food you are able to, to eat and that you tolerate and, and that you get. Not everybody gets uh, the best fresh uh, organically grown food. It's just not available everywhere. And the component that you need to add to this perfect diet is gratefulness, a little bit of non-striving, a little bit of letting go, and to not be too harsh and too compulsive with your thoughts about your perfect diet. Otherwise, you yeah. win maybe on the nutritional side, but you lose on the stress side. 100%. And stress, I think, is actually, you know, as you said, these three things, sleep, food, and stress, are you, you kind of equally attribute them of importance. And and I, I used to put, you know, food and diet and exercise up here. And stress, also very important, you know, stress, spiritual uh, life, uh, relationships, um, um, mental, emotional health, you know, it's still very important, but like down here, like 20% and then 80% food. Over the years, I have actually personally shifted to, um, you know, diet and nutrition and exercise, very, very, very important. But um, if, if it came down to it, you know, our ability to manage stress, to live a more peaceful life, to have less anxiety and worry and doubt and fear and to be a more peaceful, happy, joyful person. I actually think that is even more important, right? I think that is, that's like where we should um, put uh, as much of our attention as possible because we could eat the best food in the world, right? Organically grown from a local farmer that's filled with nutrients and all that. But if we're stressed out all the time and afraid and anxious and worried, I mean, our immune system is going to be inhibited. You just talked about parasympathetic and sympathetic. We're going to have trouble sleeping. We're going to have, you know, worrisome doubts all the time. We're going to be, you know, really um, negating the benefits of that healthy food. So I think that's such an important thing. I actually did two podcasts recently on the science of this, of, of meditation and mindfulness and with uh, Dr. Isaac Elias and then also Ariel uh, Garten on my podcast. So people tuning in can go listen to those to go really deep into this subject because I think it's super important. Um, but I agree, actually, I used to be way more strict with food when we traveled, for example. My wife and I, uh, years ago when my daughter was born, we were on a 100% raw food diet right? And so traveling and all of that was pretty challenging and could get stressful. And over the years, as we got, you know, cleaner and cleaner and cleaner with our food, try, and we still travel quite a bit, it, it, it is a challenge and has been a challenge to find the foods that, that we consider healthy. And so when we travel, I'm like, now I'm just much more uh, flexible uh, okay. because I don't want to stress out about it. I'm like, I look for the cleanest places, the organic places, the plant-based places, the healthiest foods I can find, but sometimes you're just you're not going to find the perfect place. And so it's like, all right, well, I can always find something. I can find some rice and beans and I can find some a salad and I can find I can make a smoothie. I can go to the Whole Foods and get some stuff there. And it's like I'm just more flexible when we travel to avoid that stress. Right. So I think that's important. 
and we do not digest our food properly. We do not pr uh, produce enough enzymes in our saliva and our stomach if we are stressed. Eh? And mm. if you eat your meal, please eat the meal and don't do anything else. Don't watch the TV. Don't have telephone calls. Don't have stressful conversations with the ones that you eat your meal with. You should be silent, give thanks, and eat your meal in a in a silent manner, in a meditative state of mind. That's where the parasympathetic system works at, at its best to digest and to produce all the enzymes that we need. So That's a tough one. That's a tough one for sure. Um, I know for, for a lot of us. While you have a, 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 your meals, uh, don't eat in front of the refrigerator while you ha are on the phone. Sit down, please. Have a little pause. Do a little meditation or your prayer. Give thanks. And then you eat with peace of mind. That makes a huge difference. I would say that this is at least as important as the quality of the food we eat. How we eat it. And what mindset. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Well, um, your book, Holistic Cancer Medicine, where's, where can people get a copy of it? What's the best place for them to get, get your book? Well, get in everywhere, touch with right, you? Yeah, everywhere you can buy books, you can go to the publisher's website right away. Chelsea Greens in Vermont uh, sells it. All the big bookstores, all the online bookstores sell it. I don't want to make PR for a particular bookstore. Uh, it's out there everywhere. You can order it around the globe in the English-speaking world. I, uh, it's now also released in the United Kingdom and in Australia. Um, uh, Chelsea Green has subdivisions in, in uh, London. So it's easy to get. Holistic Cancer Medicine and my name. Um, and yeah, it's not difficult to get the book. And if people want to come see your clinic in Germany or get in touch with you or your team, where's the best place for them to do that? Well, go to our website. Uh, the clinic is called Arcadia Clinic, Arcadia Praxis Clinic. Praxis means clinic in German. Um, and or go, look for my name. There is only one Dr. Salpe in Germany and only one Arcadia Clinic in Germany. And uh, send us your uh, submission. My secretaries will take care of your submission and uh, send them to us doctors. We have three doctors here at the Arcadia Clinic. And we look through everything you send us very, very carefully and get back with our first um, uh, uh, answer that we either invite you to have a, a video call with us uh, or, or a telephone call. And please send us all your medical documents and your most recent CD scans or MRI PET scans and your most recent blood work so we can make a proper evaluation if we are a good match for you. Um, and then we have a, a video uh, con consultation with you where we find out if we want to work with each other. And then if, if it's a yes on both sides, uh, we send you a treatment proposal. In average, patients stay three to four weeks at our uh, clinic. That depends on, on, on the stage of the disease, but in average, it's, it's three or four weeks uh, per treatment. We do follow-ups. We send patients home with a home care package with lots of ideas and practical advices, uh, but also with drugs and remedies. We love to stay in contact with your local doctor if there is anybody that wants to cooperate with us uh, with more infusions in your hometown. Um, and that's what we do. Well, fantastic. Dr. Sapa, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the great work you do and uh, appreciate you uh, so much. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nathan. It was a great pleasure.
to meeting with you and all the best for your work. Your, you bring this message out into the world that's extremely important for us today. Um, people like you can change the awareness of our fellow men so that more and more fellow men learn that they can take initiative and they are responsible for their lives and for their treatments and that there is more than the reductionistic uh, approach in Western World Clinics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it and honored to uh, finally get to actually meet you in kind of person here and uh, like I said, I've known of your work for years and um, just humbled and honored to actually spend this time together. So, so thank you so much. And everybody tuning in, we wish you so much health and happiness. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others. Subscribe to catch future episodes and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.